Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, once again, where we have been for months now. Well, we were in chapter 5 for a little while, but we've been in chapter 6 for several couple of months. And we're still on the uh, overall subject of private prayer, private prayer within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, at least on two different occasions. There's a companion passage found in the first few verses of Luke chapter 11. But we believe this is the first time that he gave it within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. And before I read a few verses, let me just say in our last meditation, (coughs) excuse me, uh, two weeks ago, last week we departed from it for a Lord's Supper, Lord's Table message. But two weeks ago, when we were last in this topic on the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, we considered the fourth petition. Prayer is asking. We haven't really prayed until we've asked God for something. And so in each of these things that we've considered, even what is considered an ascription of praise, uh, hallowed be thy name, we're really asking God to hallow his name. And the fourth petition is give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. We learned that all the necessities of life, and aren't you glad really they're blessedly few, having food and raiment, let's be content, as Paul told Timothy, but all the necessities of life are comprehended in that term, daily bread. So we need to pray for the daily bread. That comprehends, as writer Daniel Henderson has told us in a book we've used a lot here a couple years ago, that comprehends our resource and our relationship needs. Resource needs and relationship needs. God has promised to supply all of our needs, but Jesus still taught us to pray for them. One reason must be, I'm sure you've thought about this, one reason we should pray even though the Lord knows our needs before we ask is is that we won't worry about things. I mean, worry and faith cannot thrive in the same soil. And so when we don't worry, we will grow in our faith. And when we have proved God for ourselves, then we'll have great liberty and boldness to intercede for others. And that's the heart of true prayer. And I hope we'll enter into that even more. With that in mind, let's read the entire Lord's Prayer that will focus on verse 12 and verses 14 and 15. But just to get in the context of the entire prayer, verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May thy name be hallowed. Thy kingdom come. So much is comprehended in that. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Verse 12, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. But Jesus didn't stop there. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Just as bread is the first need of the body, forgiveness 
is the principal need of the soul. If our sins are not covered, atoned for, we have no standing with God. We have no access into His presence. And when we knowingly condone sin in our lives, we are wasting our breath if we try to go through the motions of prayer. We read in verses like Psalm 66, verse 18, if I allow sin in my life, if I condone sin in my life, the Lord will not hear me. It's a blessed thought that we are children. That's why we are invited to come and address God as our Father. Amen? If He's our Father, then we're His children. What a privilege to call God Father and to know that we are His children. Yes, we are children, but may I remind you, we are also sinners. We are still sinners. Our only hope of access to the Father is through Christ's precious blood and the forgiveness that that it has won once and for all for us. God waits to forgive us for Christ's sake. And then He expects, expects us to extend that same forgiveness to others. God's love to us is only made clear as we forgive others. Love to God and love to our neighbor is inseparable. That's even brought out by when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? And He answered from the book of Deuteronomy, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy mind, thy soul, thy strength. And then He said, and the second is like unto it. Did you catch that? The second is just like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love to God and love to our neighbor are inseparable. But let's face it, folks, this matter of forgiveness, having a forgiving spirit, it's contrary to our nature. It doesn't come naturally. And Jesus realized that. And so within the context of of prayer. He mentions this matter of forgiveness. Jesus realized that an unforgiving spirit is the great sin even of His praying people. And it is the great cause of the feebleness in our prayer. I don't hesitate to say it, folks. The devil fights prayer more than anything. And very few people are having regular answers to prayer even though God wants us to. And I believe the principal reason is the only thing Jesus mentioned here in connection with prayer, forgiveness. Now, the very terminology that Matthew quotes Jesus as using suggests several key points about this matter of forgiveness. It's not a profound message. It's a very practical one. I hope you're taking notes. I hope you still have the little booklet that was given at the beginning of this series. A number of our children do. Some of them remain with us, and they're taking good notes, and they bring them to me, and that thrills my heart. Several key points about forgiveness. First of all, the need for it, the need for forgiveness. I certainly hope that we all realize that our Lord would not have commanded us to pray a certain petition if we didn't have a need to do so, and He knew that. I I cringe every time I hear somebody just pray in a vague and glib way. Oh, how we get in ruts in prayer. Sometimes we're just plumb unscriptural. 
Sometimes I hear people say things like, Lord, if I have sinned, please forgive me. What kind of a prayer is that? What in the world? We all sin every day. We desperately need forgiveness. Just as we need bread every day. I don't know anybody that goes a whole day and doesn't crave bread unless you're sick. No, we desperately need forgiveness. The meaning of the Greek word for sin and its synonyms, the words there will shed some light here. So let's take a moment to do that. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. I'm certainly not, but I can just tell you what what words mean. I can look them up like you can. So let's take the word for sin. Let's take the, the meaning of the word for debt. Let's take the meaning of the word for trespass. First of all, for sin. The Greek word is hemartia, which is the common word for wrongdoing in the New Testament. It carries the idea of, many of you know this, missing the mark. What verse does that remind you of? How about Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We fall short. We miss the mark of God's glory, which is absolute perfection. May I remind you, God is holy. God is absolutely holy. He hasn't gotten soft and senile in His old age. He hasn't changed to where He now grades on the curve. Sin is an infinite offense because it is committed against an infinitely holy God. Sin is missing the mark falling short. It's interesting that Luke, in his companion passage, the second time we believe Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, as it's written in Luke chapter 11, he uses this same word, hemartia. And it's, instead of using the word debt, as we have here, he uses the word sin. Forgive us our sins. But that brings us to the word used by Matthew here, and that is debts. Doesn't that suggest that we owe God Matthew uses the word debts here. It's the Greek word ophilema, used only a few times in the New Testament, and it literally does mean something owed. The majority of the times it is used in the New Testament, it refers to moral or spiritual debts. So let me remind you, let's just put it out there where we can all understand it. Sin puts us in debt to God. Well, I hope the question on your mind is, what do we owe God? Okay, I'm glad you're asking that. We owe God, you and me, every one of us, perfect obedience. He has a right to that. And falling short of that means that we are indebted to Him. We are in His debt. And in this fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, we're asking God to expunge that debt from his record book when we ask him for forgiveness. Now, we're in debt probably to others also in a moral way. We owe them certain things, not just money. If you have uh, signed a note or owe something on your house, but we owe others in a spiritual and moral way. What do we owe them? Love. The Bible says, owe no man anything but to love one another. 
Romans 13, verse 8. We owe men respect. We owe others the gospel, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 14, I'm a debtor to all men, both to the Jew and to the Greek, to give them the gospel. But these debts are all contingent upon our debt to God Himself. Closely related, contingent upon. That's why, and I hope you've been impressed with this as you've read David's great penitential psalm, the 51st psalm. What a beautiful, wonderful and appropriate expression of confession it is for all of us. But wait a minute. He says in that psalm in verse 4, against thee, speaking to God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Wait a minute. What was he confessing? He was confessing his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. So he'd wronged Bathsheba. He'd wronged Uriah the Hittite, her noble husband. He'd wronged his own wife. He'd wronged all the people of Israel. But all he says is, against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. You ever thought about that? Every sin we commit against others is really an act of rebellion against God. It's a declaration of our independence from God. And until we see it that way, we won't realize its heinousness. Matthew uses another Greek word rendered trespasses in verses 14 and 15 when he says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. As he makes a comment after the prayer, Jesus does. This is another Greek word. This is the Greek word paraptoma which may refer either to an unintentional slip or fall or to a willful transgression. Most of the time that it's used in the New Testament, it's talking about something done more from carelessness than intentional disobedience. But could I remind us all, because we have a real vague, fuzzy idea about this, just because we don't intentionally do something wrong doesn't mean God's not offended by it. David said... In Psalm 19, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from what, class? Secret faults. You know, you just didn't want to put yourself out there in case you messed up. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. We hurt others unintentionally, but it's just as real a hurt as if we were guilty of a premeditated atrocity. And we need God to show us our secret faults so that we can have a clear channel with him and get our prayers answered. So folks, sin is sin in God's sight. It's missing the mark. It's falling short. It's rebellion against God. Sin separates from God. It is therefore our worst enemy. It's our greatest problem. Sin has disastrous disastrous effects upon man. Its ultimate effects are death and damnation. But in the meantime, it wreaks awful havoc. Even in this life, while we're breathing, it's responsible for misery and guilt and dissatisfaction and wars and broken relationships and suffering. It makes men susceptible to disease and pain and forgetfulness and trouble and sorrow and on and on we could go. And we just accept these things as the common lot of all those who live in this world and are born as the sparks fly upward to trouble. 
but it's sin. It's sin at the heart of it, at the root of it. Now, since this prayer is directed to believers, I think we need to infer that the word debts here are those incurred by Christians when they sin. Jesus is talking to us here. He's not talking about those reprobates out there that better repent and get saved or they're on their way to hell. He's not talking to them. He's talking to us. He's talking to the ones who have a right to call God our Father. These are the ones who are to pray, forgive us our debts. So please don't let this go right past you to the person behind you. We sin every day. We are all plagued by this constitutional disease called sin. We all need to keep short accounts with God, or are you listening? We're going to get head over heels in debt to Him. The need for forgiveness. Secondly, I want you to see the basis for forgiveness. There's such a mushy, soft attitude about forgiveness out there, about God. The average person in America thinks that God's a soft touch, a mushy, senile, grandfatherly figure up in heaven who extends benign forbearance to virtually everybody. He's somebody that wouldn't hurt a flea. Folks, God is love, but that, nothing could be further from the truth than that kind of a caricature on God. Yes, He is by nature a forgiving God, and that's what I want to emphasize today. But we can't appreciate the good news of forgiveness unless we see the bad news of condemnation. God by nature is forgiving. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, but thou art a God ready to pardon. I like that disposed to part. That's his default setting. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. But here's the question. I hope you're with me. How can God forgive? A lot of people have this mushy attitude that he just loves us so much he can't bring himself to punish us for our sins. Nothing is further from the truth. Let's expel that kind of thinking. The truth is God loves, are you listening? God loves Jesus so much that He cannot reject His atoning sacrifice for our sin on the cross of Calvary. That's why we are accepted in the Beloved, the Bible. We're not accepted in ourselves. We're accepted in Him. How we love to sing that song that Chris Anderson gave us. It's become one of our favorite ones just a few years ago. It wasn't even known to anybody. His robes for mine. And one of those stanzas says, God looks at him and pardons me. I love to sing that song. There are two kinds of forgiveness set forth in God's Word. We mention this every time we have the Lord's table. We did last Sunday. But I hope you'll pardon me for hitting it again. Two kinds of forgiveness. First, there's the once and for all pardon we get at salvation from God as judge. It's interesting that that word forgive here in verse 12 and also verse 14 and 15 is the Greek word aphiomai, which has the root meaning to hurl away or to send. What does that conjure up in your mind? 
Uh, what it makes me think of is the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Remember, it took two goats to picture Jesus on the holiest day of the year on the, on the Jewish calendar. One was the goat that was killed. The other was the scapegoat. And the sins of all the people would be confessed over the head of that scapegoat. And then he would be sent by the hands of a fit man into the wilderness, never to be seen again with the sins of the people on its head. All believers, those who have been saved by the blood of Christ, have experienced God's justification once and for all. That is judicial forgiveness. I'm not trying to be technical, but this is a legal matter. God's concerned about legalities. We may call them technicalities, but God doesn't. The slate has to be wiped clean. There has to be no record of evil against us, or we have no standing with Him. You say, well, that's not fair. Nobody's perfect. Hey, you're beginning to get it. You're beginning to get it. If nobody's perfect, then how are we going to stand perfect before Him? We're going to have to have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account. That's a legal matter. Call it a technicality if you want to, but it's mighty important. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Because we are in Christ, His perfect righteousness has been credited to our account. And so God sees us as righteous. God sees us as acquitted, as justified, as pardoned once and for all. Like God said about Israel in the time of Balaam, He sees no iniquity in His people. Now, if let me deal for just a few moments, and if you're not happy yet, this ought to get you happy. What does God do to and with our sins at the moment we are justified by faith in Jesus? I hope this will bless your soul. I won't say anything new here, but I hope we'll rejoice by way of remembrance. What does God do? Well, first of all, He wipes the slate clean. He gives a discharge. Micah verses, chapter 7, verse 18 we alluded to this verse, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. That's our God. He wipes the sleep clean. He covers our sin. Psalm 85 verse 2, thou hast covered all their sin. What does that conjure up in your mind? I think of the mercy seat covering the Ark of the Covenant and how the blood sprinkled on that mercy seat covers our sin. What does He do with our sin? He blots out our transgressions. Isaiah 43, verse 25, I am He that blotteth out thy transgressions. The Hebrew word to blot out refers to a creditor who, when his debtor has completely repaid him, he cancels the debt and he gives him a certificate of acquittal. Reminds us of Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. What does God do with our sins? He scatters our sins as a cloud. Isaiah 44, verse 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgression. Sin is like a a cloud that comes between us and God and casts a a pall over our soul and hides His reconciled face from us, but Jesus removes it by His blood. He buries our sins out of sight. 
We've already quoted from Micah. Let me do it again. Micah 7, verse 19. Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Aren't you glad that our sins aren't like a cork that bobs right back up? Our sins are like lead that sinks to the bottom. Isaiah 38, verse 17. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. And whichever way God turns, they're still behind his back. You know, we hear those verses and we're kind of glad for them. But folks, if that wasn't true, if that weren't true, I should say, we would of all men be most miserable. Don't take for granted the pardoning nature of our God. And there has to be a basis for that. God just doesn't feel sorry for us and sweeps it under the rug. He's a holy God. The only reason God can do all this is that He's already judged our sin upon His Son on the cross. Jesus was our substitute. As He hung on the cross and darkness like midnight was cast upon Him at midday, and He cried, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? At that moment, he was bearing the unmitigated wrath of God for all sin and sinners. And Jesus took our sin, and he credits us with his righteousness the moment we trust him as the divine substitute. Thank you for the amens, and I'm sure we're all saying that in our heart, but some of the people we revere and some of the people we quote and some of the people we call spirit-filled men of God don't believe that. And I'm going to warn you, the big-name evangelist of the mid-1800s, Charles Finney, didn't believe that. The commentator, Albert Barnes, it's in most, if you have any kind of collection of commentaries, he's probably one of them. He didn't believe that. Finney and Barnes and others believed in what was known as the governmental view of the atonement. You say, what does that mean? Well, they believe that the fact that Jesus was punished for sin shows how much God hates sin, but they did not believe that either our guilt or His righteousness could be transferred from one person to another. Check me out. I'm not trying to create a sensation. I'm just warning you folks, because you'll hear good men refer to Finney as a spirit-filled man of God who saw many people saved in his ministry. This is a serious error, not a theological technicality. Finney denied the whole reason that God can forgive the sinner. Well, it's getting quiet. Let's move on. There's once and for all atonement for sin. There is a continual purging of sin to be able to maintain fellowship with the Father. Aren't you glad for that? The Lord's Prayer is for believers. We've labored that point. Not unbelievers. Jesus gave it to His disciples. So the forgiveness of sins that is in view here must not be the, the pardon that comes at the, at the moment of justification. If that were true, then Jesus would be making good works a condition for salvation because he clearly makes the matter of our forgiving others a condition for our being forgiven. 
I'm not going to explain away what he said here. And this is an important distinction. Confusion on this matter abounds. Thankfully, it's not as con- quite as bad as it used to be. It used to be because so many people had Schofield reference Bibles with the notes by the late Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield that they would read the note that he has here on this verse, on this passage, the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he said when it said, where Jesus said, if you forgive not man their, your trespasses, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. This is what Schofield said. This is legal ground. Compare it with, Act, or with Ephesians 4.32, which is grace, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And he goes on to say, under law, forgiveness is conditioned upon a like spirit in us. Under grace, we are forgiven for Christ's sake and exhorted to forgive because we have been forgiven. Do you smell a rat? You ought to. Many of us grew up on Schofield. I mean, my hope is built on nothing less than Schofield's notes and Moody Press. That was true of a lot of us. But he knows better now. This note is very misleading. It certainly sounds like Dr. Schofield is saying that Old Testament saints were saved by works while New Testament saints are saved by grace. But the confusion can be quickly cleared up if we realize this important distinction between once and for all pardon at the moment of justification and the ongoing experience of forgiveness as a condition for maintaining fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Oh, I hope you see the difference. This is what 1 John 1, 8 and 9 is talking about. If we say that we have no sin, John says, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in, in us, us as believers. Same ones Jesus is talking to here. The truth is not in us. We are still sinners. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, how we often quote that verse, and we need to quote that verse, and we need to appropriate it. The story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet is certainly a parallel passage here, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, but maybe some are not, and it would be good for us to hit it again. Look, look at John chapter 13, would you? John chapter 13, we'll read verses 5 through 11. John 13, verse 5, Jesus has just completed Supper, the Last Supper. Verse 5, after that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter saith unto him, verse 8, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Just give me a whole bath while you're at it. Jesus saith unto him, verse 10, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. He uses two different words for wash here. The first one means bathed all over, and the second one means 
a partial cleansing. Cleansing of the feet in this case. So that's what is in view here with the Lord's Prayer as it's given in the Sermon on the Mount. So we've seen the, the need for forgiveness. We've seen the basis for forgiveness. It's not just because Jesus gets sentimental toward us. But I want you to see in closing the terms of forgiveness. The terms of forgiveness. God doesn't pronounce absolution of our sins just because He feels sorry for us, regardless of what our attitude is. God doesn't force forgiveness on anybody. There are some people who don't want forgiveness. Former President of the United States said he didn't need forgiveness. I don't know if he's changed his mind about that. I hope he has. But there's a shallow attitude about forgiveness afoot that says we shouldn't judge anybody. We should just be forgiving of everybody. It's interesting. The very people who say that we shouldn't judge anybody, they judge those of us who try to exercise discernment and warn people about their sins. So so they're not very consistent. It sounds to me like they're saying let's condone sin because we're all sinners. That is certainly not the attitude that God has towards sin. He's willing to forgive, but He does not pronounce the absolution of our sins until we confess them. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We see this illustrated in the earthly life of our Lord. Confession before absolution. In His dealings with a woman of Samaria, in His dealings with a repentant thief on the cross, So what are the terms for forgiveness? The Bible is clear. We'll be done in just a moment. For us as believers, what are the terms? First of all, confession with forsaking. Proverbs 28, verse 13. You probably know it by heart. I hope you do. He that covereth his sins shall not, what? Prosper. But whoso, what? Confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Dirty feet cannot be washed until they're presented for washing. You don't keep your sandals on. Only what is truly confessed is truly forgiven. Sin is not forgiven until it's repented of. The Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthians about the godly sorrow that worketh repentance. That's something produced by God, godly sorrow. So this repentance is not a human work that merits the forgiveness of God. We don't earn forgiveness, folks. Repentance is a condition for forgiveness, not a cause, just as faith does not merit God's favor. Faith is just the channel through which His saving grace flowed. Sometimes we hear people say, and I I know they don't mean anything heretical by it. They often say, I'm saved by faith. No, you're not. You're saved by grace through faith. Huge difference. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is a channel. Even our tears need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. Nothing meritorious about our repentance or our faith. So there needs to be confession with forsaking. That's the terms of forgiveness. And then 
as Jesus made a big deal about here in, in these verses in the Sermon on the Mount, we must forgive others. Isn't it interesting that out of six petitions that make up the Lord's Prayer, the only one that Jesus picks up on and reinforces and amplifies is this matter of forgiveness in verses 14 and 15. Do you think maybe it's important? Do you think maybe it's preeminently important? Jesus does not want us to miss this. If we would receive and experience forgiveness ourselves, we must be forgiving to our debtors. Did you know there's no higher higher virtue in God's sight? There's no nothing more godlike on our part than to forgive. You've seen this statement, you've seen it on a bumper sticker to err is human to forgive divine. Yes, that's true. Proverbs 19, verse 11, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and here is the second part of that, and it is his glory to pass over, to overlook, to forgive a transgression. It's his glory. So let's look at a few little sub-points here, and then we'll be done. I want you to see the motive for forgiving others. It must be even as Christ also forgave you. Would you turn to Colossians chapter 3 where that phrase comes from? We'll read the entire verse, the full text of this verse, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13. Paul says, forbearing one another, that means bearing with one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you so also do ye, even as Christ forgave. It is precisely because that we have been freely forgiven by Christ that we are to announce and extend that same forgiveness to others. Aren't you glad that you don't have to read your name in the book of life to know that you're saved? Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to read your name in the book of life. You can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that your sins are forgiven if, among other things, you can just look into your own heart and see that you have a heart of repentance and forgiveness towards others. I'm serious. Certainly an unforgiving spirit is inconsistent for one who's been totally and freely forgiven by God. That was the thrust of the parable that we read at the beginning of the service. We read responsibly. I hope you noticed it as you were reading Matthew 18, 21 through 35. There was that servant who owed his master an extravagant amount of money, 10,000 talents, hundreds of thousands of dollars in our currency. But he was freely forgiven of that debt by his sovereign. But the first thing he does after that is he goes out and finds a fellow servant And he grabs him by the throat and demands that he pay a debt to him that was relatively insignificant in amount to to the debt that he owed his sovereign. You say, what a hypocrite, yeah? That's right. That's hypocrisy. But you know, it's worse than hypocrisy. Because no man can do to us over a lifetime what we can do to God in one day. Let's remember how Christ has forgiven us freely. Then there's the measure. Very similar here, but a little bit of a difference. The measure is as God forgives. 
That's a pretty tall standard. But though we cannot equal God in forgiving, we are commanded to imitate Him. So often, man's standard of forgiveness falls short of God's. You hear it said, when God forgives, He forgets. Well, let's be careful of what we mean by that. God knows everything. But He does. He, he chooses not to call to mind our sins when He forgives them. And I'm thankful He doesn't. Do we forgive that way? We need to forgive fervently. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 35, the last verse we read there in the responsive reading, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. David didn't forgive from his heart Absalom. And it showed up in a devastating way later. Our forgiveness must be sincere. Not just an outward pious show. (laughs) May I remind you, when God forgives, He drops the charges. He cancels the debt. He doesn't strike a plea bargain deal. There's no lingering bitterness. It's not a vain show. Even those who were His enemies are now His cordial friends. That's the way we're to forgive. Forgive fervently. Forgive fully. Every Thanksgiving season, invariably, we'll read Psalm 103 or quote from it. I love verse 3 of that great psalm. Referring to God, it says, Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. All of them. He doesn't just reduce the debt from 80 to 50. He forgives them all. You can always tell a hypocrite, he'll, he'll pass by some offenses, some of the lesser ones, but he'll retain others. Would we want God to deal with us that way? I don't think so. We're to forgive frequently. Isaiah 55, verse 7, jot that down. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That means he does it a lot. That means our Lord multiplies pardon upon pardon. In Matthew 18, Peter asks that question. We just read it earlier. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? And he thought he was being pretty magnanimous and generous there. Jesus stunned him with the answer, not seven times, but seven, until 70 times seven. In Luke chapter 17, it says something similar to that, that if our brother sins against us seven times in a day and then says, I repent, comes to us, we are to forgive him. Now, you can try to deny that or the, uh, that it applies to you. You can say, well, what if it's the same stinking sin over and over? And he's just making use of that to take advantage of, of the command Jesus gave for you to forgive him. There's nothing in the context there that says that this sin was deliberate or that the repentance was feigned. Nothing. Thomas Manton was a great Puritan writer, not as well known as some of the others, but I love what he said. He said this, There is none so tender to others as they who have received mercy themselves. 
for they know how gently God has dealt with them. Praise God for that. I don't have time to get into the last point, the manifestation of an unforgiving spirit looking on the flip side of the coin. Let me just say this. It's just not worth it to harbor a bitter and unforgiving spirit. The root of bitterness defiles many. It defiles you, but that's not all. It defiles others around you. So much in the Bible about forgiveness. When we hear the the word forgiveness, as far as illustrations of it, we often think of Joseph in the Old Testament and what a wonderful, inspired example he is of forgiveness toward his brothers who had sold him into slavery, towards Potiphar, who'd thrown him into prison. But you know, we have some more recent examples that are wonderful too. I think of Corey Ten Boom, I think of Sabina Wormbrand, a movie came out recently about her, the wife of Richard Wormbrand, who founded Tortured or uh, Martyrs. Uh, what's the name of the, the Voice of the Martyrs? Voice of the Martyrs. Thank you. We had uh, the the play, the Hiding Place, here just a few years ago. Had it in the auditorium because it was a religious play, and it brought out brought my, my, me to tears again. Although I'd heard the story and read the book before, Corey Ten Boom had to forgive. A Nazi prison guard who was so cruel to her sister Betsy. Corey had seen this guard viciously abuse her sister, and her sister died just a short time thereafter when both of them were in prison for protecting Jews in Holland. Many of you know the story. Years later, as Corey went around and gave her testimony in many, many places, Billy Graham and others featured her. She was seated on a church platform about to speak when she saw that very man in the congregation, in the audience. It was hard to speak. She struggled in her heart, but she begged God to fill her heart with the love of Jesus, and God did that. She was able to pronounce the words of forgiveness to this man after the service, even though, are you listening, she did not know for sure at that moment that his confession indicated true sorrow. But Corey Ten Boom was able to enter into Christ's passion on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You say, Preacher, why is this such a big deal with you this morning? Because it's a big deal with Jesus. Do you want to get your prayers answered? Do you need to get your prayers answered? Then you better forgive as Christ forgives you. Only the merciful shall obtain mercy. Shall we pray? Blessed Father, please breathe into us the same mercy that you have for us. Oh God, forgive us for our excuses, for our aloofness about these things. Oh God, as much as lieth in us, Help us to live peaceably with all men, to be a channel of your love and forgiveness. Please, let the mind of Christ be in us. Give us a Christ-like disposition to forgive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.